Hey team, it was my absolute pleasure to interview Dr. Eric Helms. Eric and I have done a lot of work together in the past. Eric is a research fellow at AUT University. He has a master's degree in nutrition, a PhD in training, and he's also a world-level bodybuilder and a powerlifter, a national-level Olympic weightlifter. So he's certainly someone who doesn't just talk the talk, but he walks the walk. Eric, to my mind, is one of the best in the biz when it comes to bodybuilding and strength and power development. He's one of the founders of 3DMJ, and you can find out more about them at 3DMJ.com. They're a bodybuilding and strength and power coaching company. He's also one of the founders of the Mass Research Review, which is probably the best research review for people wanting to learn more about the science behind building mass and building strength. Eric's also the author of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, which have just been released in their second edition and are now available in hard copy. And you can find all the links to Eric's material and his coaching in the show notes. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this chat between me and Dr. Eric Helms. Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. My good buddy, Eric Helms. What's up, man? Thanks for being on the cast. We finally made it. A few technical issues. I find that's uh, the norm when it comes to podcasts and webinars. It's not a podcast if it goes right. Exactly. I think we've had quite a few issues over the years with podcasts. Indeed. Yeah, <laughs> we've had mass audio roundtable we had to re-record, and we had uh, the logistical fun of trying to get one person off-site while we had three on-site for Iron Culture. It's been good times. So I shouldn't be too apologetic then? Absolutely not. This is something I've already put you through twice. Three times, if we count the re-record. So. All those hours I've wasted with you, Eric. I've wasted your life, so you get to waste <laughs> mine. But I get so much more back. So I, I, I'm guessing that everyone who is watching or listening to this knows who Eric Helms is. But if you live under a rock and you're not into lifting that rock or getting big, strong, jacked, lean. Um, you, you might be wondering who this guy is who who looks a lot like Hercules-era Steve Reeves or a bearded Frank Zane. Uh, Eric is one of my good buddies, researcher at AUT, and I think one of the best in the biz for, for coaching, uh, for bodybuilding, strength, power development, all of those things. Uh, one of those few people that is, in my mind, a, a legit practitioner researcher. So it's great to have you on my cast, Eric, having been on yours just a couple of weeks ago. It's That's a very generous introduction. I'm, it's an honor to be here, and I do encourage anyone who is li living under a rock to use that rock and overhead press it. So well, That's one thing I actually wanted to talk to you about, because we've talked about a lot of things in podcasts and, and various things over the years. 
workshops, seminars, all sorts. But one thing we haven't really discussed is physical culture. And I know that mm. you are really into physical culture. And, and I don't know how that really came about because obviously it's something I'm into, but I think my entry into that was quite different to yours. So how did you become involved in in this interest in the old school of physical culture? You know, it's it's kind of a funny thing. So I, I, I'm probably not unlike many bodybuilders who got exposed to the, the movie Pumping Iron and kind of went, oh, I get it. Like that's, I get what he's talking about, what they're doing there. And that was quote unquote old school in my mind at the time. And we're talking circa 2005 or something like that. And, um, and it, it would, it would be years before I really considered, um, anything before that or became aware of it. Uh, I saw pictures of Steve Reeves and I went, whoa, that's amazing. I really like that. Uh, and he was one of my other inspirations for natural bodybuilding, but I didn't know John Grimmick. I didn't, if you said the term physical culture, I wouldn't know what you were, what you were talking about. Um, and, uh, yeah. So the next exposure I would get would be, there was a local gym, still is a local gym in Sacramento, Body Tribe, um, which you can tell just in the title, it, it has homage to physical culture, you know, and, uh, Chip Conrad. And the, the staff there, really, really good group of people. Um, and they used to put on powerlifting meets at Body Tribe. This is a really cool gym. They would put on art shows there. So there'd be like pieces of art. And then like you could go do your thing. It was right in kind of the uh, the cultural center of Sacramento. Um, I think it's moved locations now, but really, really cool gym, really cool vibe, very positive people. And they were pre-CrossFit doing things that you would only see once CrossFit came around. Um, and, but much more about just human movement for fun, expressing strength, uh, or exercise as play and pushing yourself as a kind of a, a cultural norm in the gym. Uh, and they would have strongman classes. They would have Indian clubs. They'd have battle ropes. Uh, they would have Olympic lifting. Uh, they would have grip strength challenges, uh, kettlebell workshops, uh, and Olympic lifting, all, all stuff that they would, they would do there. And I got introduced to it as a, Oh, this is where they put on this powerlifting meet that I do every year or, or twice a year sometimes and met and met chip and chip then later actually started presenting to, uh, my students at Bryan college, Bryan university, a local, um, a local private college for personal trainers as well as some other professions. But I really loved what he had because it wasn't a you're broke and I want to fix you model of, of, of uh, marketing fitness and running a gym. But he had trainers who would really learn about movement and learn how to have fun and facilitate getting uh, their, their people to enjoy uh, the, the, this, this way of moving that they'd never done before. And the whole mindset was different. And I thought it was much healthier and productive. And I just saw that his clients were, were functional, happy, and fell in love with, with moving their bodies, which is something that I think every trainer wants their, their clients to aspire to. And it really comes down to it. And he was the first started dropping hints about like, Hey man, there's, there's, there's deeper aspects to this. And, uh, you know, he said something like, yeah, Eugene Sandow, like, cause I said something about the Olympia and how they got the Sandow trophy. He goes, yeah, Sandow was an interesting guy. You know, he flexed as a way to show his strength. And I love that you guys at 3DMJ compete in powerlifting and bodybuilding. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, we're power builders. Like, like there's a new, new age term is like a new concept, you know, <laughs> yeah. the fact that you can do powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, 
So it was, and he would just drop these little hints. And then when he was presenting to our students at Bryan College, I was learning just as much as they were. And, uh, you know, he's the one who introduced me to, uh, hey, sometime you should check out uh, the Stark Center in, uh, in Austin, Texas, and Jan Todd, who I then didn't come across. And that was just kind of this little thing. So I planted a seed. I didn't know who, I, I learned who Jan Todd was from a, like a record holding legend of powerlifting, but I didn't know that she was a PhD historian who was, you know, her and her late husband were carrying on, uh, like leading the entire research field for Iron Game history and that they actually had a journal that she started called Iron Game history. Um, So none of that did I know. Um, And I did get into Olympic lifting. Chip was my first Olympic lifting coach before I came out to New Zealand. And I did that largely because I knew this was a part part of S&C. You know, that's why I'm doing my education and strength conditioning. I want to broaden my horizons. Um, and I was doing many things and practicing. And I held many beliefs that were part and parcel of uh, a physical culture. Kind of the holistic approach to bodybuilding we take, I think, is um, a, uh, a testament to that. But I didn't know the history until sometime around 2013 or 2014. I became very curious about the idea of... Um, what what has been achieved in natural bodybuilding, what can be achieved in natural bodybuilding. And I was discouraged because there was this kind of rise of you know, indignation and almost a witch hunt that came out around this time in against natural bodybuilders. If you claimed you were naturally at a good physique, it's almost guaranteed people are going to say you were a liar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew I couldn't affect that, but I, I saw some of the negative side effects were, were that young, young gentlemen and women coming early to the sport didn't have the ability to discern what was possible, what wasn't. You know, being in the sport a while, having done it myself, I knew and, and I could see it having negative consequences either way, either overly dampening what they thought they could achieve and, and, be, and, and only allowing like the most medi- mediocre of naturals to be seen as true naturals in their head and limiting their own capacity or, you know, hearing things from, from, from people who are actually claiming to be natural when they're not and thinking they can achieve something like, you know, like Ronnie Coleman or something like that, you know? So there's these two very extreme views. And I thought, well, you know, the only really way we can get any kind of look at at examples that were, that people are going to be convinced are natural, um, is if we, so I figure out when did steroids come into the bodybuilding scene? So I wrote a, uh, an article that was in the AARR um, on basically what can be, be achieved by natural bodybuilders. And I did, uh, this, I did this whole deep historical deep dive. This is in 2014. And I tried to figure out when did anabolic steroids get invented, introduced, used, and, and taken up by the, the natural bodybuilding, or sorry, by the bodybuilding community. And, uh, and I've even, I've just got, I've been researching the last five years I've spent researching that. And essentially if, if, if anyone wants to know the answer to that, if you're looking at a physique prior to 1953, you're, you're going to almost be a hundred percent sure they're not using steroids. Hmm. Um, so, and, 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 and even John Ziegler type era there. Exactly. Yeah. And it, exactly. So, you know, some people will point to 1936, you know, that's like the first human trials or 1930, 33 when it was first isolated, but they forget that you actually had to create an entire hormone industry and then produce it. And it wasn't until we had, you know, manufacturing processes and the uses of actually the Mexican steroid industry and, and using yams instead of like having to get thousands of bull testicles before it became scalable in any fashion. Mm. So it really wasn't until the early fifties 
that it was starting to be used. And it wasn't until the mid to late fifties that it became more, more widely used. And it wasn't until the sixties before it became ubiquitous. So if you're looking at a physique from the, the early fifties or forties, which is a lot of really insane physiques, you can be sure they're drug free. And, and that was when I started to look back, I was like, Oh my God, all these people have been forgotten by the, by the general bodybuilding public. Like I didn't even know who John Grimmick was. Yeah. And then looking back into physiques from the 1890s and 1880s that would just boggle your mind. I became really, really intrigued in it. And also in weightlifting records, you know, a guy named Herman Gorner who deadlifted 793 pounds back in the, uh, the early 1900s, you know, cause I've heard people claim like, yeah, if you, you need to use anabolic steroids if you want to deadlift 800 pounds, random number. And I was like, I don't know. There was a guy who pulled damn near that, you know? So yeah. it's, it was just cool. Like this, this question of, um, what are the roots of, of, of pre performance enhancing drug era strength performance? Uh, and, and, and then it kind of dovetailed into this, Oh, wow. I really love the philosophy behind this. I love the culture behind this. And, and that is now a very small part, the aspect of what can be accomplished drug-free. So, I mean, even now, you know, we've got four times the population and greater participation back then lifting was so rare. It was a circus act, you know? So it's, I think I think we can definitely reasonably assume that we we can achieve more than what has been achieved, like all sports have. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, long long answer to your short question was uh, I was trying to figure out um, what 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 drug free lifters have achieved previously, and then just fell in love with the culture that existed and kind of the Grecian ideals and the connections when between what are now seen as distinct disciplines. You know how the uh, Mr. America used to be held in conjunction with senior weightlifting championships. And I know your involvement um, in weightlifting has been something that is very much a throwback and homage to that. Yeah, it was. And I, I mean, I got into it differently because I was a boxer, right? I was a competitive boxer and I wanted to go to the Commonwealth Games. That was my whole thing. Um, probably not a lot of people know that. And I got medically retired from sparring. Mm. Right. And I, I could never get a ticket to fight. I, I ended up having one semi-professional tough guy challenge fight in, in Vancouver, which was very ill-advised because I fought a guy 20 kilos bigger than me. I, I knocked him down in the second anyway, but it, it, that was my one fight because I wanted to get it out of the way. But I previously been medically retired and uh, I thought, well, now that I can't... Is that from concussions? From concussions, yeah. Yeah. So... I figured I wanted to continue doing something and I liked the idea of being strong and I'd never really done much in that respect previously. I had been into bodybuilding for a while through my teens and early twenties. And I, um, I started seeing pictures of, I don't know how it came up actually. I think I was searching online for, for odd lifts and things. And I started seeing pictures of Arthur Saxon, you know, cause he pops up mm. so often doing his uh, famous two hands anyhow, which is still, to my knowledge, an unofficial world record. Now, I got into that and then started searching for, well, who sanctions this worldwide? And it was the International All-Round Weightlifting Association. I came across a guy called Steve Angel, who I subsequently became really good friends with. And I kind of used him as a benchmark of what strong is because he's the world record holder overall weight classes for the Zercher lift, for the one-hand deadlift a bunch of other lifts. He's one of the few people to have lifted the Denny stones, but he did it 20 times, you know, um, all, all that kind of stuff. He's a very 
strong individual. Uh, mm. A famous story with Steve was that he was getting trolled online uh, by a bunch of CrossFitters saying, well, you might be strong, but can you repeat it? So he got the beast. You know what the beast is? The 48 kilo kettlebell. And he, yep. he clean and pressed it 50 times with each arm. <laughs> so he said, yeah, I can repeat it. But because of all that, I thought, well, this is really interesting stuff. And this is where weightlifting came from. And not just where weightlifting came from, but where bodybuilding came from. Because mm. weight- can I ask you, yeah. how did you get into all around? Like, because uh, I I didn't even know all around that, that, that it had a federation that was created. I think in the eighties, it's kind of like homage. Until you told me about it, my only exposures were like most people. I knew about weightlifting, I knew about bodybuilding, I knew about strongman, and I knew about powerlifting, and I knew about CrossFit. But I was not aware of all around. How did you get exposed to it? That's a, a good question. I'm not 100% sure how. I think the thing was that I had been into bodybuilding. I'd been really into martial arts and boxing and all sorts of you know combat sports through my entire life. And then when I went looking for something, I just happened to come across these old pictures of people doing one-arm lifts and, and different things. Mm-hmm. Then when I looked at what I could potentially compete in and looked at powerlifting versus Olympic lifting, I wasn't that enamored with the idea of doing two lifts. And I wasn't really that enamored with powerlifting because the initial exposure I had to it, which I subsequently realized was wrong, but the initial exposure was just big dudes, like enormous men on a shit ton of gear, lifting ridiculous weights. And I kind of thought that I'm not- Probably with bench shirts and squat suits as well too. Exactly. And I I always liked the idea of raw. And I know raw's become such a big thing in powerlifting now. But when I started getting into this in the late 90s, it was probably still, particularly here in a small market, it was still very much dominated by equipped lifting. And this was also before uh, CrossFit took off and Strongman was even probably just as niche. So it makes sense that, that that's where you went. Yeah. And so it was, it was very, very, everything was very niche. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was just interesting. So I got in touch with some of the guys who lifted in Australia and they said, oh, well, we've got um, a world champs coming up, I think in two years. And there's no organization in New Zealand at the moment. So we're happy just to sanction you if you, you know, train hard and come across and we'll see how you go kind of thing. Um, because it's such a small sport, you could do that. I guess you could do that back in the day in powerlifting too. And so that's where it all started. I competed at that World Champs in in Perth. But yeah, really fascinating. And I'm still fascinated by it. And now even more so because I I also, you know, wrestle. I do catch wrestling and and grappling, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so much of the early history was also tied up with that. You know, I've I've read Arthur Saxon's book and he was also a wrestler. Um, Gurner was a, a great wrestler. Uh, mm-hmm. George Hackenschmidt was a yep. world champion wrestler. So they had all of this tied in together where they had an approach that included battling weights. It was like, you know, that they were having fun and playing with weights. And then they were also challenging themselves against other men. And they were doing all these things behind it to support it. You know, and they all had slightly different philosophies, but it's fascinating to, for me to read these old books from the 1890s or early 20th century, where they're talking about eating good, simple, nutrient-dense food and lifting weights within your capacity, but trying to get stronger over time and learning how to move the body more effectively and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's what we do now, but they were doing it back then. And these guys were incredibly strong without steroids. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's very inspiring. It's very cool just to see the, uh, the broad range of, of what humans can accomplish, you know, across the entire genetic spectrum. When you look back at history, I think that's really cool. I think we, um, obviously there are a lot of anabolics and steroids and performance enhancing drugs in sport today, but it is, it was, uh, surprisingly refreshing just to see what has been accomplished prior to that. And I'm, I would never be a denier of the profound effect that anabolics can have, but it at least opened my eyes to, to what people can achieve without them. Yeah. Um, not just people, but you know, the, the, the specimens of the world, of course. Um, and I think that that's just, that was just a really cool experience. Uh, and, and so it, it was uh, very fascinating to me as well. Um, I think it's also cool that you got exposed to, to all around lifting because it is really a throwback to the beginnings of, of competitively organized weightlifting. Um, I think people think when they think weightlifting, they, they probably know it's snatch and clean and jerk. Now, if they know a little bit about a history, they know there used to be the clean and press where they see like old videos of, of yeah. Arnold or, or Lou Ferrigno, or even Frank Zane, when they, they played around with that stuff or some of the early guys in the forties. But what they don't know is that man, back in the, the very earliest iterations, weightlifting was in the Olympics, but as one of the events in track and field, and they would choose what they were going to have as, as the lifts you do for each Olympic cycle. Yeah. kind of like CrossFit. And then eventually it wasn't until the twenties where it became its own event. And it was primarily single arm dumbbell based lifts and didn't become the Olympic weightlifting we know of today until uh, the thirties when it was the three lift and they, they dropped out the cleaning press. So it's just, yeah. it's had its own evolution. And now we see this, this clear fracturing of the disciplines that to give CrossFit credit, it's probably the, the, the only thing that's created a little more unification and interest. Um, for sure. Cause you see CrossFitters basically doing strongman Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting. Um, even though they might not know that what they're doing is a, is a throwback. It is. You know, I think CrossFit has been amazing for strength sports. You know, how many people have been introduced to getting stronger through CrossFit? The first CrossFit group I worked with was one of the earliest CrossFits and it was set up in Vancouver. And at the time, like most strength coaches, because I was still doing a lot of strength coaching then, uh, this was back in 2006, seven, maybe. So CrossFit was pretty new on the scene. Yeah. Like most strength coaches, I kind of thought CrossFit's a little bit silly and it just gets people injured and it's just people basically being energizer bunnies, right? And I went along to give them a workshop on Olympic and all-round weightlifting because I'd just come out of my sort of competitive phase then. And I was blown away by how keen these people were to learn. Yes. They were so interested in learning the movements and refining the movements. Whereas a lot of the athletes that I worked with, and even a lot of the strength coaches that I coached, they were more like, okay, how long is it going to take me to master a snatch? Can how I can, learn it today? How can this help me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I want to use this as a means to an end, which is something that um, I like. CrossFit has evolved. It's gotten so much better and there's many great minds in it. And, uh, you know, that there are stark differences between what you'll do at a CrossFit box in the first few months as a recreational CrossFitter versus what someone will do for the games. But I will say that it, uh, people who are still pigeonholing CrossFit based on what it was in the mid two thousands are, it's probably not fair. And there's for every box, there's a different take on CrossFit, but I had the same experience. I had, uh, stereotypes in my head. And then when I took my USAW certification 
at uh, California Strength in 2011, and two thirds of the, of, the, of the members there who were getting their certification in Olympic weightlifting were CrossFit coaches. And it's exactly the same thing, expressing that desire to learn openness and wanting to go to the true experts to then bring it back to their people. Uh, it kind of broke some of those concepts of the, uh, you know, how do you know someone's a CrossFitter? Because they told you in the first two seconds of meeting them, you know, like that, that perceived arrogance kind of thing. I, I didn't find that to be true. And like you, I really appreciated the fact that many people involved in CrossFit, it's it's a means within itself. It's an end to an end. You know, it, it, the movement itself is enjoyable. The process of training is enjoyable. And it's something a lot of athletes start with. Mm. You know, they start with play. They start being a physical person. They enjoy it. But then they get a little too extrinsically focused and they don't retain the same joy of training that seems to be just part and parcel uh, of, of the average uh, person who engage in, engages in CrossFit, which I think is really valuable. And how many cross, crossover athletes have we seen? A lot. Yeah, you know, we, we've got Olympic, uh, you know, Commonwealth and Olympic Games, Olympic weightlifters in mm -hmm. New Zealand. A lot of them have come from CrossFit. You know, we've got Bailey Rogers, we've got Patterson, yeah. we've got a whole whole bunch and powerlifting too, especially mm -hmm. when CrossFitters do get a bit older and they start to feel it that little bit more. They quite often gravitate to powerlifting because they can probably still be really competitive with less training volume. Yeah, there, there's there's a joke, and this doesn't actually include CrossFit, where um, you start out as an Olympic. <laughs> it's going to be a good joke, <laughs> and then you get a little bit older, and you start to do powerlifting. You get even older than you just do bodybuilding. It's basically, just how <laughs> injured are you, and and then how many more options do you have? You know, yeah. like okay, well, I don't have the shoulder mobility or the hip mobility I used to have, so I can powerlift, and it's like eh, I've got a torn rotator cuff and and all this and that, and now I can only do machines, so I'll, I'll bodybuild. Yeah. But it's like you know. And, and I think that the same could be, be applied to CrossFit for sure. Well, one thing we used to say in all round is all round lifters never retire because they don't need to. There's all these different lifts. And if you can't, you know, if you don't really have the mobility to do a really good, full, deep Olympic snatch anymore, you can probably still do a good one arm snatch or you can do a continental snatch or, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's always something there. And I, I've competed against seven year olds who have kicked my ass. That's awesome. Like, and they're crazy strong, you know, people like uh, Frank Allen and I can't remember his name now. I competed against the guy. We weren't obviously cause they were masters, but we were all competing together in the same sure. lights and things. He was stronger than you. Yeah. Well, one, yeah. Um, one guy I was competing uh, with in Australia, he was about 70 years old and I'm pretty sure that on a three inch bar, he was still lifting sort of 70, 80 kilos, mm. one hand. One hand. Nuts. Now that's that's tough, and very few people on the planet can do that. That's like doing. I think that's what an inch dumbbell is, or an inch dumbbell might actually be a slightly thinner handle. And I've I've lifted an inch dumbbell once when mm. I was at my strongest, and very few people in the world have lifted the inch dumbbell. That's crazy that these guys are still that strong. Seventy. Yeah, that, that that's incredible for sure. Do, do you do any of the? sort of old style lifts, maybe the British amateur championship lifts or anything, one arm snatch, bent press, any of those variations? I don't. Uh, I have. Uh, Chip was was the first person who introduced me to some of those. Um, and I, I did play with them. I did a kettlebell workshop there. Um, but the 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 inclusion of them in my regular training is 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 not something that I that I have, even though I do enjoy them. Um, and some of that has just been mediated by the fact that I'm currently competing in bodybuilding and powerlifting. So it's, 
and, and for a while Olympic weightlifting, there was a time when I was splitting my foc foci around Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting and bodybuilding. And then I had hip surgery and, and, uh, and got repeated neck injuries. So I stepped away from Olympic lifting. So overhead work is something I can't really do heavy at the moment. Um, just cause it, I, I don't want to risk the neck injury, but some of the, the deadlift variations and, and some of the things like that, I, I really do enjoy. I just don't have them regularly in my training cause I'm still looking to get back on the platform and I'm actually four days out from getting on a bodybuilding stage right now. So I've been a little more focused on movements that are less mentally difficult, risky, demanding, and more focused on the more boring, but still effective muscle building exercises just as a function of contest prep fatigue like i've swapped out uh i went from swapping out uh back squats to safety bar squats and front squats and then swapping out my front squats to plate loaded power squats but still keeping in some some safety bar and then i went from uh pulling off the floor to rdls to weighted back extensions just because you get to a point where it's if i can load my muscles progressively but feel less mentally drained during and after training that's that's a net win yeah. So it's not the way I'd prefer to train, but sometimes when I'm on, you know, less than 20 kcals per kilogram of, of energy, it's what I got to do. It's probably a really good point, right? And I was going to say congratulations for actually agreeing to be on a podcast when you're four days out from a show. <laughs> hey, man, that's that's a life PR right there. That's what's up. Yeah. But the, um, I, I think a lot of people underestimate the effects of energy restriction on neural fatigue and on your proclivity to injury and things like that you know and it's it's a pretty important thing for people to r realize now whether they're in a you know bodybuilding prep phase or not or whether they're just potentially chronically underfed it's a pretty big factor when it comes to overloading in the gym and and predisposing yourself to injury particularly with some of those big lifts you mentioned yeah i mean there's so much to unpack there so um, people tend to be in this day and age, pretty familiar with the concepts of an energy surplus, energy maintenance, or an energy deficit. But what they're often not familiar with is the concept of low energy availability, yeah. which is something that has been adopted in the last five or six years as a, as a thing, um, by especially championed by the IOC and the, the researchers who work there. But it's the idea that if you have been not providing enough energy for both your bodily processes and your exercise, and we see what's commonly referred to as quote unquote metabolic adaptation to bring you back to energy maintenance, even though you're not in a deficit, even though you're not uh, necessarily losing weight, you can be in a relative energy deficiency uh, for your given sporting demands. And there's a, uh, a set of symptoms associated with that and a set of consequences. And it just means that your body is shutting down quote unquote non-essential processes to stay at energy balance, but that that has a downstream effect. And if you look at people who have uh, low energy availability, which you can typically define as how many um, calories per kg of lean body mass you're consuming once you factor in your activity levels, uh, at a certain point, even though someone might not be losing weight, you start to see higher risks of injury. Uh, you start to see uh, greater incidence of eating disorders. You start to see immune function decline. So that absolutely describes what's happening in a bodybuilding prep, plus you're actually in a deficit. Like once you hit that status of when your body's downregulated you to keep energy maintenance, then you go, right, that's when I need to cut more, do more cardio. Um, so in addition to simply uh, being in this physiological state of downregulation, now you're actually right, and I need to deplete glycogen, and I'm going to be depleting my fat stores. 
which has other independent effects. So there's, if people know how fatigue works in exercise science, you know, we have uh, peripheral fatigue and central fatigue and they're interrelated. So peripheral fatigue is stuff that goes on. Uh, like if you've locally depleted glycogen or your pH levels are, are, are too acidic in your muscle, you're going to have trouble contracting, right? Yeah. Uh, you won't be able to keep going. Central fatigue is when your brain just dims the lights a little bit and you can no longer output as much force. When you have low glycogen levels, not only does that impede the sarcoplasmic reticulum from creating contractile force, but having those pH levels, having those low glycogen levels create a feedback loop, which then triggers central fatigue, which can last for hours. Uh, and you can have a, so for example, being in a deficit, being in a status of low energy availability, you're already at higher risk. You're already going to have a limited performance just from that alone. And then you go in and you decide to do five by 10 on back squats. Good luck on your RDLs and your leg press and your leg curls afterwards. It's going to be a pretty shitty workout. So all of that factors into the way I train now. And I think about, all right, well, maybe I'm going to split my volume up over more days. Maybe I'm going to stay at a moderate RP and a moderate rep range and do more sets to get my volume, but still keep my activation, muscle activation levels higher. So the calculus changes when you're in an obligatory status of low energy availability and uh, low body fat mm -hmm. and, and glycogen stores, you know? So it, it's definitely something you have to consider as, as, a, as, a, as a competitor. So when there's that risk of fatigue, and this could be someone who's underfed, it could be someone who's preparing for a bodybuilding comp, it could be someone who's experiencing chronic fatigue, you know, um, for a range of reasons. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion then on doing relatively heavy work for few reps and few sets as a way to not tax the central nervous system quite so much? Because I know that comes through in the research on chronic fatigue in particular. I think that's a great strategy for someone who is cutting weight for a uh, powerlifting meet or an Olympic weightlifting meet is typically they coincide anyway. You should be in the intensification period of your training where you're doing less volume and lifting a little heavier while you're also typically doing some things to make weight. Uh, and if you're actually making weight from a relatively higher weight class, it means you've dieted as well. And you should be trying to take the lowest volume, most specific approach uh, that, that'll line up and, and shouldn't exacerbate the issue. The problem is for, for bodybuilding, where you're trying to maintain maximal lean body mass, uh, the stimulus is not as much neuromuscular as it is local. And you need to create a certain area under the curve of, of, of muscle tension. And so if you were to only do a few sets of low reps, uh, you would probably not maintain as much muscle mass. So it's kind of finding a way to uh, preserve the, the muscle tissue with the most volume you can do without taxing yourself. So it's still not going to be as much as the off season. Um, but it's going to look different. And I think largely it comes down to, all right, what are the intelligent combinations of RPE reps, exercises, proximity to failure, a number of sets that I need to do. So for example, if I'm going to do squats or deadlifts, instead of doing tens and fifteens and eights, like I might in the off season, because I can, and it's fun and, and, and it's an easy way to accumulate a lot of work. I might do like six sets of four. And like a five RPE, that's still like my nine rep max. That's 80, 85% of one RM. I'm going to get damn near max motor unit recruitment. And I, and each one of those sets is not going to be crazy taxing, but mm -hmm. I can repeat them a lot of times. And then I can save the high rep work for single joint exercises that shouldn't generate a lot of global fatigue. 
uh, and then moderate rep work for things like, you know, rows and things like that. So it becomes this, this calculus of thinking, what's the easiest way to get my work done while still keeping it effective and getting some kind of reasonable level of volume that's maybe not quite as high as the off season, but comparable. Because in the end, the way we maintain muscle is the same way we grow muscle. There's not really a change in the way the body sees it. Cause we're not like, not like when you go into a deficit, you flip a switch, Yeah. you know, like when I have my dinner, I'm actually in a surplus for that time period. If I eat 500 calories in one sitting, I'm going to be in a postprandial state. I'm going to store some body fat and replenish some glycogen. And then an hour later, I'm starting to tap into stores again and I'm in a deficit, you know, so you can do things like feeding around your training a little more um, so that you don't feel some of those sensations of fatigue as readily. You're more easily able to buffer fatigue and not be have, you know, low, low blood, uh, sorry, low um, blood glucose levels and, and top off your glycogen just a touch, you know, like if you train first thing in the morning when you're dieting, you'll notice, oh, wow, I feel pretty shitty sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably because your liver glycogen is even low, not only just your muscle glycogen and your blood glucose levels aren't stable. So getting a little bit in and there is some data to support the idea that while peri-workout feeding of carbohydrate or or just energy substrate in general, it's not going to make a big difference in the off season. It might when you are dieting and dieted. Uh, yeah. So I think there, there's some rationale there. So there's a number of things you can do nutritionally and training wise to try to at least preserve that part in the day where you need to perform when you're dieting. Um, and I, I think it comes down to being savvy and holding back a little bit while still figuring out the, a way to get in work that is as minimally taxing as possible, but still maximally effective. So with, with all that said, would you agree that basically what you're doing now in this final prep is almost like the extreme approach that speaks to what is most effective for fat loss anyway? You know, the funny thing is I don't think it's the most effective for fat loss per se, but I think it's most effective for body recomposition. Um, because if, if I wanted right now to lose as much fat as possible, I would try to burn more calories in training. You know, I would sure. be doing, which would basically scales with training volume, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, people think like, hey, high reps get you cut. And then like the scientists will go, actually, the cuts in your muscle are already there, you know? And it's true. High reps don't get you cut. But doing sets of 15, while they might be just as effective as a set of six for on a set to set basis, if they're at the same RPE for hypertrophy, it's going to burn more calories, you know, because you could do a set of 15 with your 60, 60% 60 of 1RM, mm -hmm. you know, and that's 900 units of arbitrary volume. But if you do a set of six with 85%, it's only two thirds of that, you know, so you, you can feel more cut because you got a bigger, bit of pump. Yeah, you'll look more cut for a second, but yeah, yeah, at least <laughs> that, that worked probably. Yeah, you'll look better for at least an hour or two, um, <laughs> or you'll deplete more glycogen and, and you'll look a little worse later. <laughs> but I think, but yeah, if I really want to do what I thought was optimal for fat loss, I would probably be doing two full body workouts a week, largely doing 15s to 20s, knowing that that's still very effective, not maximally effective for uh, for maximal retention of lean body mass, and then I'd be doing a lot of cardio, you know. So I think, um, I think there's a difference between, man, you've really got to look like a bodybuilder at the end of this, but you have to lose all the fat pretty much versus I'm trying to maximize fat loss. Mm -hmm. And most people who are trying to maximize fat loss aren't trying to get to the point of leanness where I am, nor should they. There's no reason to get as lean as I am unless you're actually going to get on stage. I'm a few months past the point of like a healthy level of body fat, you know, which is important to point out too, so... 
Yeah, I mean, we we discussed that in our Getting Jack workshop a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, and I think it's important to reiterate because I know that we both discussed our, our own sort of journeys and how possibly at some points in our lives we were probably underfed, mm-hmm. you know, by proxy probably starving a little bit to maintain mm-hmm. an unrealistic level of leanness year round. Yep. And I know that when when I was doing that in my 20s, on in some respects i felt good because i was performing well i was really strong compared to you look good now, looked great motivating but, um, yeah also i wasn't sleeping well i was uh yeah. really on the edge you know constantly had little sort of those little facial muscle ticks and things that come from being exhausted and looking back it, it's interesting because to function at my best i think i need to eat more and therefore uh, you know risk for lack of a better word, having a little bit more body fat. When I used to read about guys like that, um, who used to write about that? A lot of the old weightlifters used to write about that. Like, I don't want to be ripped because, you know, I'd sort of say, oh, it's just because you're not committed to your diet. Yeah. Now I realize that it's bullshit. Yeah, that's that's you you protecting your own beliefs. But yeah, there's, you've heard the kind of the adage of either you can be strong or have abs, you know? And of course that's not true and it's individually different. And it's 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 a gradation, but um, this is actually an area of research I'm really interested in because everything that I read, for the most part, indicates that these exp- these uh, diet fatigue experiences and these impotence uh, to to performance and these negative physiological adaptations that we want to avoid are driven by low energy availability rather than by being really lean. And but there is there's some threshold. Uh, to where it interacts with 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 uh, with, with leanness, um, and if you think about it, you know body fat itself is a leptin signaler. So when you're really low in body fat, the only leptin signaling you're really getting is from eating, right? So in my experience, um, I typically use nonlinear or cyclical dieting. So people are taking diet breaks or refeeds or high days as a way to mitigate some of these symptoms, reset things, and then go back under. But it's still kind of like circling the drain. It's just I'm trying to really slow that circling the drain process and then also replenish glycogen, facilitate some recovery of glycogen and muscle and, and, uh, and, and you know, get the sex hormones functioning at least a little bit again. Um, and there's a lot of research now emerging showing that that's, that's a good thing to do for someone dieting, right? Um, however, eight weeks ago, when I would be on my second or third high day in a row, I would feel like, man, if you transported my brain into uh, from the off season into this body, I wouldn't know the difference. I feel great, and I'm like, man, I'm 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 86, 87 kilos. That's that's actually five, six kilos less than my normal walk around weight. I look great. I, I, I'm lean enough for a photo shoot. I'm not ready to get on stage and be successful, but I feel amazing. I can't believe it. You know, this this mm. nonlinear dieting stuff is awesome. Maybe it is all. All, all energy availability. And if I just eat enough while being this lean, then yeah, maybe it is that that I, I could. Uh, I, I just need, like you said, that that discipline to manage my diet. But man, there's a big difference between being, say, nine percent body fat as a male and being more like six or seven percent body fat. Because now I will feel like that on my high days, but as soon as a low day comes around, automatically hits me like a ton of bricks. We're talking a twelve-hour difference. Like you miss yeah. a meal, I miss a meal or two. Um, and all of a sudden I, I can feel those effects and it kind of makes sense. Like if, if all there's really left is liver glycogen and muscle glycogen to pull from and, 
Yeah, sure. You've got 40,000 calories of body fat on you, but as far as your body's concerned, that's, that's going to go real quick. You know, that's not enough to sustain you through, you know, an ice age or, or whatever our, our clocks are set on. So I find at a certain level of leanness, uh, you're just walking a tightrope. Like you can't miss meals. You have to have a high enough, you know, genetic settling point to where you get to eat enough calories at that level of body fat. Um, or you're feeling lethargic, you can't sleep through the night, all this stuff. And it'll normalize from overfeeding, but then your body fat will also start to go up because your energy expenditure is so low. Yeah. So where that is, is different for everybody and it will change with behavior as well. And that's a big component. Like I think I could probably walk around at 88, 87 without issue, but my way in this morning was like 80 point something, you know, and I'll mm -hmm. be on, when I really hit peak, condition I'm, i'll be a little bit leaner for my shows in in july i'm gonna have weigh-ins that might dip just under 80 kilos it's six foot you know so it's like that's an that's really really lean that's depleted of course as well but um that that that's not sustainable if if i want to be performing optimally and healthily and and sane you know yeah, yeah now you brought up a really interesting point and I've seen a lot of people clinically or advise a lot of people clinically on this in just the last year or so. It segues really interestingly with this perception that I'm going to go a little bit tangential here. I hope that's okay with this perception that low carb equals poor hormone function in women. Mm. And I have at this point, based on the evidence, rejected that hypothesis. I'm not saying it couldn't be correct, but based on the evidence, it doesn't appear to be correct because the studies that are used to support that don't show that at all. The people are actually eating quite a lot of carbohydrate, but what they are is extremely calorie restricted, particularly when you look at their relative energy availability. So according to exercise. Now, I've seen a lot of people lately, particularly women who have come to me in the clinic and said, well, look, I'm, I'm not losing any weight. I can't lose any weight. I'm feeling terrible. I'm fatigued. You know, I'm having all these issues. And does that, in your opinion, speak to this idea of metabolic adaptation to diet, whereby they potentially have adjusted to a fairly low calorie intake. They're trying to exercise more to make up for that. They're not eating enough. Because when we start to incrementally increase their calories, typically they feel a heck of a lot better and they can maintain the same level of leanness. Yeah, I, I do think it speaks to that. And I, we, can, uh, we can point to some of the literature on bodybuilding that I'm quite familiar with that, that, that uh, speaks to this. So, for example, uh, there is a 2017 study that was done by a group in Finland who I'm, I'm colleagues with. Uh, lead author was Holmey. And they looked at, I think, 40 to 50 female physique competitors there. And these are drug-free uh, who dieted down and then spent three to four months being tracked in the recovery phase. And they gained weight. They put back on body fat and they got back to, especially if you look at the pictures, what would be considered a healthy athletic body composition that you wouldn't expect there to be an issue. And you know what they had to do to get there. They had to eat more. Um, yet not everything had fully recovered by the three to four month mark. There were still plenty of them that were experiencing amenorrhea, which is... The cool thing about being a woman, besides, you know, being able to give birth and other cool stuff about being a woman, is that you have this barometer on your energy availability status. Because one of the first things to go is the regularity of your menstrual cycle, at least, at least premenopausal women who are uh, not taking uh, hormonal contraceptives. Yeah. Um, so 
like when I diet a woman, I can tell when things are, oh, we're, we're dipping under the range where her body is going alarm, alarm, you know? Um, so there, there was not a full return to the normal menstrual cycle among a majority of individuals at three months, even though they had gotten back to the, the same status of, of their starting uh, body fat. And there's a case study where this lasted 72 mm. weeks. So we're talking a year and a half before the menstrual cycle came back. However, she had returned to her previous body weight. So what's happening here? Well, it means that someone's going to be rapidly regaining weight and then starting to moderate things, which is a really common behavioral pattern you'll see as someone who is basically fat overshoots. So they've lost a little lean body mass. They've had a lot of metabolic suppression. Then they overeat because that's what they should be doing. But they overeat so quickly that the fat compartment increases and their total body mass is high while their metabolic rate, or rather I should say their total daily energy expenditure is not where it needs to be. But they're like, oh my God, my body fat levels all the way in, or too high. And then they kind of slow things down, cut it off before they fully recovered. And now they're maintaining a higher body fat level sometimes, slightly less lean body mass. They're still in a status of relative energy deficiency. And that's when they come to your office. This, you'll see this in competitors, but you also see it in yo-yo dieters, mm. right? Or people who've been just on and off dieting for a, a larger part of their life. Uh, they'll get to that position where they have to or they, they believe they have to, or at least in the short term, they have to, to not see their body fat go up anymore, stay restricted, which has those downstream effects. So it's kind of an unfortunate thing. And you do see it also in like people who are wrestlers in high school, yeah. and college, and and and, uh, and that, that probably also has effects on maturation, things we see in gymnasts as well. Mm. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. And I, I think it's a good example as well of you've obviously done a really good job of looking at the nuances and unpacking all this stuff. So you've basically gone beyond as you would, because you're a scientist gone beyond just looking at, well, it's all about energy balance in its most basic sense. And so if you're eating less, you're losing weight. If you're eating more, you're gaining weight because there's a lot more to that. Yeah. And I think I'm going to segue beautifully here. I think this is one of the challenges here that we have a lot of people who claim to be evidence-based, but really they're, they're choosing to either follow someone who's evidence-based, and I know we've talked about that before, or just using the most simplistic evidence-based models and applying it carte blanche across mm -hmm. everything. And I think that's really limiting the scope of discussion in, in performance, but also obviously in general health. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. In this specific instance, it's really under important to understand how the body is achieving energy balance. Right. Yeah. Um, and knowing that you, you can be at energy balance, but there's a cost and that kind of nuance is ideally the, what being evidence-based is. And I mm. think, unfortunately, um, but necessarily, I'll also acknowledge, being evidence-based is used as a policing tool, yeah. um, right? Because there's a lot of people out there who would use uh, pseudoscience and the limitations of what science can tell us, or even just outright lies uh, or mistruths or misrepresentations that maybe aren't malicious as marketing tools, as, as ways to uh, spread something that will get the money or just because they're uninformed and they're, and, and they're giving this information. So there's a huge movement of 
uh, rational skeptics who come from it as a position of I'm fighting the bro science or I'm combating the pseudoscience. Um, you know, the um, kind of the, like the Richard Dawkins attitude towards it all. Like, oh, this is this is this is bunk. I'm, I'm a debunker. Yeah. Now, I don't I don't think that that's not that that, that doesn't have value, but. I think it's really important if you are doing that or if you value that or if you're following people who do that to also realize that that often comes part and parcel with an attitude that is authoritarian mm. um, and that is uh, sometimes condescending or dismissive. That's an easy social pattern to fall into. The problem with that, though, is it's basically an ad hominem. It's a subtle ad hominem, you know. And, and, and like like it's wrapped into it. it this this anytime you you come off as condescending, or if you belittle someone else, or you throw them under the bus, or you use words like charlatan or all that stuff, that is a signal to everyone who's listening to you to say, oh, just don't don't listen to what they say. Yeah. They're bad. I'm good. That's not necessarily what's intended. But when you have that attitude, that's actually directly counter to what being evidence based should be, or or, or logical debate where the idea is not to straw man someone else and say, oh, not evidence-based, so everything you said is false, but rather to steel man them, to, to try to interpret what they're saying using the principle of charity. Here's the best interpretation I can get out of what you're saying. I'll feed that back to you. Did I get that right? Hmm. And then we can actually make sure we're learning something from this discourse. So yeah, you, you can be science-based, but in my opinion, not evidence-based if you are attacking others uh, and happy to misinterpret someone if you quote unquote know they're wrong. Yeah, and that's that's fine when you're dealing with the Dr. Rozes and the food babes of the world. But sometimes when you find someone else who's just a, a multidisciplinary researcher who is outside of your field, or you're just misinformed, and you carry that condescension into it, it's actually a Dunning Kruger effect, and you might not know what you're talking about, uh, and you might be uh, limiting a whole line of inquiry. Uh, or or labeling someone as a pseudoscientist when in fact they might be onto something. And I think you see that a lot uh, in some of the uh, the carbohydrate discussions. I think you see that a lot in some of the metabolic adaptation discussions. I think you see that a lot um, in some of the, the the training discussions around volume. Mm. Uh, and it's it's counterproductive. And I think as an, as the evidence based community, we need to not let debunking be our primary function, but rather putting out, I mean, it needs to be done. Don't get me wrong, because people are going to come out with dangerous things that uh, we need to say, hey, that there's really no evidence for this and there's actually potential harm. Um, but for the most part, we need to be providing solutions and, and action uh, calls to action rather than telling people what not to do uh, and acting like, like whack-a-mole artists. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that, that that's really what it comes down to. I think I, I, a great example of that, I remember years and years ago debating homeopathy with someone because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a homeopath, right? No, I'm not. Big time. This is the most evidence-based strategy ever, right? <laughs> and there were a couple of different people talking about this. And one was saying, well, homeopathy works. Another person was saying it doesn't work. The person who said it didn't work said, there's no point even investigating it. There's no point even doing research on it because there's no way it could plausibly work. Now, I understand the plausibility thing, because we're probably going to investigate things that we think have a strong hypothesis, but mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that's a good reason to not investigate something, right? If we investigated homeopathy and found that 
it works better than placebo and we don't know exactly why that still doesn't change the fact that it works better than placebo let's say yep. you know it's, it's highly significant it's highly meaningful all that kind of stuff we've then got to figure out why it's working what i'm getting at is i think often we write things off without actually taking a proper scientific mindset into it which is create a hypothesis put together methods that will robustly test that hypothesis and then see whether our hypothesis is probably correct or probably incorrect. I totally agree. And I think the reason this happens a lot, especially in the fitness industry, is that practitioners see things work um, and they might've tried it for whatever reason, whatever thing they got exposed to or just trying to be logical based on their knowledge level. And then they attempt to explain it. Mm. And the explanations may or may not be wrong or right, but it doesn't necessarily change the fact that this worked. And so, for, for example, uh, foam rolling being myofascial release, I, I do not think you're releasing fascia. And uh, but it so it's a great example is that, um, you know, massage therapists and trainers who would use foam rolling, uh, they would describe that what seems to be happening is the release of adhesions or the triggering of, of certain points. Uh, and then, you know, fascia's actual uh, mechanical properties change. Mm. And there was this period where, where debunkers were debunking the explanation but and, and then saying, oh, and therefore, not that I actually know this is true, it doesn't do what you says it does, which, which you're saying it's doing. But those are two, two different claims. Yeah, It's starting with the a priori observation that at least anecdotally it works. And then I'm trying to figure out why. Now you figuring out why it could be wrong, but it can still work. And then comes the research where we find out, oh shit, foam rolling improves range of motion, but doesn't decrease force output. What the hell is going on? And we start to find out, oh, it's neuromuscular, not structural. Yeah. So the, the, the problem is there that the quote unquote evidence-based people who are debunking these claims were right and that the claims were wrong, but wrong. And then they're taking the next step and saying that therefore don't do it or it's not evidence-based, et cetera. The, the, the proper position to have in the lack of a face of, an, of, of a mechanism is further study, not dismissal. Yeah. So I, I agree with you there. That said, and here's where I'll disagree with you slightly. I do think it's case dependent where sometimes we have such strong evidence or such a strong physiological rationale where there's no plausible way something could work to where I think the opportunity cost of devoting research resources would not be worthwhile. Like for example, some of the things you might find on Goop or something like that, you know, like, yeah. And I, I don't disagree with you there. Cause obviously we yeah. are, you know, that's where the plausibility thing comes in. You know, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a strong hypothesis to suggest that, um, you know, eating flies is going to be anabolic. Or sure. Or, or let's, let's say here's one that I don't think you could find anything in PubMed. Um, just use the power of light. You don't actually need to eat anything. Humans do have photosynthetic, photosynthetic cells, you know, or, or, or can develop them if they don't eat enough and go out in the sunlight. Yeah. I don't think we need to do an RCT on that. No. You know? <laughs> yeah. So on that note, did you, I'm not gonna throw anyone under the bus here. Did you uh, watch or listen to the uh, Stephen Guernay, Gary Torbs debate recently? I've heard parts of it, but I have not seen the whole thing, unfortunately. I think the consensus from a lot of people that I've spoken to was that it was very frustrating for a, a huge amount of reasons. 
you know, it, it felt at, at times, I don't know if you felt the same, but to me, it felt at times that it was verging on, you know, condescension, mm. not ad hominem per se, because they were somewhat respectful, but it seemed condescending. Yeah. And I think unnecessarily so, because, you know, I thought Torbs made some good points. I thought he could have actually made far better points based on what Stefan was saying. On the other hand, I thought um, Stefan probably made a more cogent argument, but there's still gaps within the understanding of how the vast array of metabolic functions in the body work. You know, and I think to dismiss the, um, you know, the research that Ebeling and, and her team are, are doing at the moment is, is probably a little bit myopic. Now I'm obviously a little bit biased because that's my research area, but mm -hmm. I think that there's still enough there from the research coming through that we can't dismiss some of the hormonal basis of fat metabolism, macronutrient me metabolism, let's call it, versus having just a solely neurobiological view of whether we store fat. Now I could be wrong, but I, mm -hmm. I think that there's actually truth in both arguments, even if one is predominantly correct. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you. I, I think, I think some of the frustration comes from, it's very clear that Tom's made claims that, that are false and are falsifiable. And, and that that's some of the, the basis of his, his entire um, argument. And that there is intentional or unintentional um, ignoring certain evidence that doesn't fit a model. Yeah. Uh, or, or extreme mental gymnastics to ignore certain data, right? Um, that is frustrating because when someone does that, that means they're inherently intelligent and is well-read and the ability to do those mental gymnastics. Like, I think Gary Tobbs is a smart guy. I think he's just heavily biased. Um, well, he and doesn't I, scientific literacy either. That's where I think a lot of people mm -hmm. who run under the bus are wrong. They say, oh, he's just a journalist. Just like they say about me, you're just a naturopath. It's sort of, it's not ad hominem, it's advocatio. You're basically saying, what is the guy's vocation? That means he doesn't know anything about this. But, you know, from what I understand, Torps has an undergraduate science background. He's done a lot of, you know, reading, he's published papers. I think it's pretty clear when you listen to him talk that he understands science. He hasn't probably been in, involved in it directly with primary research to what I've seen. No. I think what he, what he lacks though, is that the skill set to trace a smoking gun down in, in journalism and, and uncover something is not the same as taking a broad, unbiased, uh, systematic approach and looking to falsify your own belief as well. You're looking for shreds of, of, of a cover-up. It is very different than going, all right, here's the model I think. Let me try to disprove it on my own, yeah. which is the way science is supposed to work. So you can tell there's a huge, clear lack of Tobbs attempting to disprove his own model. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we take a look at the strict you know, insulin-driving insulin model, that falls apart really quickly, you know? Um, insulin having a role, sure, you know, absolutely. Um, and I think on the other side of it, we, there was frustration because GNA did a fantastic job of presenting all of the most important evidence that refused the claims, uh, presenting metabolic ward data, presenting meta-analytic data, 
Um, and, and that was very valuable, but at the same time, it's probably over the head of, of, of many of the listeners. <clears throat> and it potentially is confusing because there's an, there's a, uh, there's a level of science literacy that you need to have to see how firmly DNA, I, I would say, won that debate. Um, at least from a debating perspective of here's a claim, here's direct counter evidence to it. Yeah. Are you going to change your view? No, I'm not. Okay. Well, that's the end of that, you know, yeah. and, but, but, that, but you have to understand that, okay, metabolic ward studies are, are X, Y, and Z. A meta-analysis is X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Their value is more than an observation study from the eighties with six people, or their value is, is more than the, the things I've heard or, if I have to change the goalpost, that actually means that the the, 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 the original uh, hypothesis needs to be adjusted. Like I think all of those things aren't understood by the average, even intelligent person listening. So it it's going to be frustrating for the evidence-based person who doesn't understand why not everyone has now shifted their opinion to agree with, with yeah. DNA. And it's going to be frustrating for uh, someone who maybe has a bias the other way because they hear this guy saying a lot of science. They don't understand it, but he seems combative, you know, or condescending. So I, I can understand where, where the perceptions about the debate are. And, um, there's something to be said about science communication just as much as there is, uh, the data itself from, from that, yeah. uh, podcast. I mean, I think from my point of view, listening to it as well, what it showed is that the, there's so much research out there. The first point is there's so much research out there that, you know, depending on what our particular area is, and especially if we've done further education, masters, PhDs, we know typically our area pretty well. You mm -hmm. know, after you're, you know, publishing your PhD thesis, I'm sure that you had a couple hundred references there that you knew pretty freaking well, right? And that's yeah. a large body of knowledge to, to know. Now, someone with say an undergraduate level of education isn't going to have that specific area they're not going to have that well covered off but also there's so many areas that we're not probably an expert in and there's so many gaps in the research for really important questions mm -hmm. you know and one thing that was sort of glossed over in that debate and i'm not saying it's a thing or not but i think it hasn't been investigated enough is this idea of insulin tipping points because that seems to actually be a thing if we look at particularly the, the, you know, the animal evidence and things like that, where there is a threshold under which the not fat storage, I don't think that's even a big thing. Because I think the amount of insulin that we require to store fat is going to be present irrespective of diet. It's more so the tipping point for release of fat, and that seems to be a heck of a lot lower so a lot of the evidence they were arguing about, I don't think you could necessarily debate because it's clear from my point of view, well, it's not clear, it's unclear, but it seems as if maybe there's a threshold at which, hey, the same thing's going to pretty much occur anyway, irrespective of diet, which is possibly why in those studies past 12 months, where there's really no difference between, say, low-carb versus low-fat diets, except in subgroup analysis when we have very low-carb, maybe that's something that's occurring there. I'm not saying it is, but maybe there's more there and maybe that needs to be investigated. Yeah, I mean... I know you're going to agree with that. 
<laughs> uh, well, I, I think it's population specific and I think it's temporary, you know, like, um, yeah, like there's just like, like, again, I think it comes from exactly what, what, what data are you exposed to? And I, I'm looking at this observational data right now on um, the differences between pro and amateur level uh, natural bodybuilders and uh, the pros, you know, ob obligatorily getting in better shape and being leaner and then having higher carb carbon takes across the board uh, and throughout their entire diet. And you would think higher insulin levels and then seeing that insulin, you know, correlates to better lean body mass retention, even among those who get crazy, crazy lean. So it's like, at least in a bodybuilding population, you can get it done. And perhaps the, the ones who get even the leanest are, are, are on higher carb diets, at least observationally. And I'm not saying that's better. I can't know that from the study design. But what I can know is that being on as high a, carbo diet, as high a carbohydrate diet as possible while also having a very high insulin releasing high protein diet and having a low fat diet is, is definitely not a barrier. And it does discriminate between it's at least if it is a barrier, it's such a small barrier that it's not the one that differentiates between pros and amateurs. Yeah. So it's just like, fuck, it, it can't physiologically across all populations. It can't be that right. No, exactly. And I, I, yeah. I agree a hundred percent because, you know, we, we've discussed this at length before as well. I think that there are the, a pro level bodybuilder is a different animal mm -hmm. to an amateur bodybuilder. Who's maybe a recreational bodybuilder or maybe to just a sedentary person they're all very different because i think there's a couple of things going on there's obviously that training volume training consistency all those various things i think as we've discussed before that's likely to have an effect on insulin sensitivity absolutely but not only that there's survivor bias and i mm. i think my hypothesis from working with people clinically is that those athletes who who rise to the top are typically somewhat genetically gifted and in my experience they tend to do better with the with few exceptions but they tend to do better on higher carb diets because they are more genetically gifted and i think part of the milieu of things that's occurring is that possibly they have better cardiometabolic status better insulin sensitivity and perhaps they are more trainable for those things as well not just the gross physiological things yep and i think I think that's a, so w when you take a look at that perspective, then we have like the, 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 the ideal physiology of, of someone who is not dealing with any kind of um, metabolic clinical issues or someone who is, you know, our, our natural state, if you will, of being active, healthy, and metabolically well-regulated carbohydrates are not the problem. Right. Um, and so it's not a fact of human physiology. Yeah. If anything, when and if low carbohydrate diets might be better for, for, for fat loss and improving health is going to be when someone is not in as natural, quote unquote, a state of physiology, which is much more common now that we are being much more sedentary and are having our, our energy regulation disrupted by, you know, foods that's everywhere, affordable and, and really tasty. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and hell, I'm a bodybuilding coach who sits on his ass all day. That's not the way it worked in the nineties. I would have been on my feet and, and, and a gold's gym somewhere all day back in the day. So it's, you know, I think the modern environment has certainly made that a more common reality, but it doesn't mean 
that that is the physiological rationale. Like that's the, this is the way fat loss and, and fat gain works, you know? Yeah. So I think, I think, I think, yeah, low carbohydrate diets is a potential clinical tool and a metabolically quote unquote dysregulated person. Absolutely. I'm, I'm behind that. And I think more and more evidence is emerging that that may be uh, a good way to start things off in that case. And then yeah. ideally you get them towards more normal physiology and then eating uh, a diet that includes a lot more carbohydrate and hopefully more calories and more activity in the whole nine yards. Yeah. But that's, that's not Tobbs's claim, you know? No. And that, that's a common thing amongst, amongst low carb zealots as well, is that there's belief. I believe low carb is best. Therefore it's best clinically. And we're going to find a way that we can further believe that it's best for performance or for hypertrophy or for whatever else. Yes. I, I think that's due often to a lack of understanding of the differences between what's clinically relevant versus what's performance relevant. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, I think that a lot of people on the performance side who are high carb biased will think exactly the same thing. Well, if there's no, let's, you know, take diet fits because it's one of my favorite studies to talk about. If there's no real difference after 12 months for weight and fat loss, then that means low carb is stupid. Whereas I would look at that and say, well, sure, there's no difference. So if you're looking for weight and fat loss, then adherence is going to be the most important thing. But when we look and you've at- you've got options. Yeah. yeah. When we look at the cardiometabolic markers that are probably better improved by low carb, and when we look at the systematic reviews and meta-analyses of the data, which show that there are persistent cardiometabolic benefits from low carb, then that might provide another piece of information for a clinical client as to what's going to be best. It doesn't mean that that clinical client is going to be best suited to low carb necessarily, because obviously there's other things at play. Are they moving towards being more active? Are they not as insulin resistant or in poor cardiometabolic health? Can they just simply not adhere to a low carb diet? You know, all these things mm -hmm. come into play. And I think that's where the pragmatism comes in that so many people miss and you don't miss it, which is why I think we get on despite the fact that we probably have different biases. Sure. I, I think, I think I totally agree with that. And I think, um, I really only run into problems with the interpretations of low carb or ketogenic diets that are, in my opinion, unnecessarily limiting without the evidence needed behind it. So for example, we've got to limit your protein intake because, uh, insulin and ketones and I'm going, but yeah, but we don't have any data to show that, that that's actually a thing. And, um, you know, one of the best benefits I think of going on a low carb diet is it drives up protein intake without you really trying because you got to replace it with something or um, we really need to limit fruit intake because all carbs are bad and all sugars are even worse and it's like man but fruit and vegetables are so clearly good for you uh, or even limiting higher carb vegetables like i'm if someone goes on a, a whole food uh predominant diet um, they're going to end up being lower carb like sometimes ketogenic probably not always depending on their energy expenditure and body size but if you were to say, I'm only going to eat, you know, primarily fibrous vegetables, some starchy, starchy vegetables, but not highly refined processed carbohydrates, fruits, vegetables, lean meats, um, and some fatty meats here and there. That's a great diet. It's a great diet. And it will probably end up being low. It will end up being low carb guarantee. Like you, even if you ate three bananas a day, yeah. it's still going to be low carb, you know, lower carb, depending on what definition you're, you're looking at. Um, and do I have a problem with that? Absolutely not. 
Like it, it's just when like, like same thing with paleo, I think a, uh, a non crazy version of paleo, uh, where you, you don't have too many unnecessary eliminations or you don't make too many incorrect assumptions about what paleo man ate, like no legumes, like what? No fruit and legumes. Come on. You know? Yeah. Um, like I think, I think it's fine. Like if you tell someone to eat fruits, vegetables and, and, and meat, that's wonderful. You know, like, like, like that's, that's a great diet. I mean, if we look at the, what, 13 or 14 studies that have now been done, I mean, paleo outperforms a best practice weight loss diet. Mm -hmm. But I think what it's doing is, that, again, it's, it's speaking to your point, it's, it's encouraging people to eat a diet that's more based around a compendium of natural unprocessed foods. I think yeah. one of the reasons it is effective is because it conceptualizes it, which makes it easier for people. And if people understand yes. that, because it's quite... You give them a system. Yeah. And it's quite easy to understand in your mind's eye, okay, well, what would I have access to walking through the forest? It kind of yeah. makes sense. But then people say, oh, but there's no one paleo diet. And I always say, well, that doesn't matter. It's it's not important if it's getting results and if someone can adhere to it. Yeah. If someone can't stick to it because they don't like it, try something else. Yeah. My, my, my mom has had the most successful weight loss that she's sustained over a hundred pounds of loss for over a decade. Um, wow. simply by following a system where she doesn't eat anything with added sugar or anything with flour. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Well, that's the first step in, um, what I outlined in the carbon appropriate book, right? There you go. Just eliminate, yeah. First of all, you know, ref refined, not completely, obviously. I know we're not being so strict, but, you know, sure. about first and foremost, those really added sugar beverages and foods mm -hmm. and save those as your treats. And a lot of people stop there and they get great results. That's why, um, you know, even though we may not agree with everything she says or does, Sarah Wilson's plan, which is now not not going anymore, but her, you know, I Quit Sugar program, it, it worked. Mm. Despite the fact that some pseudoscience came into it, it, it worked. Yeah. And, th and that's why you typically see low fat or low carb can work for a lot of people is because when you look at the foods that we overconsume, we really like that have the lowest values on the satiety index, they're always combinations. They're baked goods or they're highly savory or highly sugary. So like you've got, and they're highly, um, yes, because exactly. Combination. They're high in calories and they, they make you hungrier when you eat them. Yeah. It's the perfect combination. So if you look at the, the, the top ranked foods, it's like chocolate, which is high in sugar and high in fat. It's cookies, which is high in fat and high in sugar. It's donuts. And then in addition to that, there's, there's, um, My shit right yes, absolutely. This is the shit. Uh, and then after that, there's sodas, which are a little different because they're liquid calories, which we don't quote unquote, see as well with our body, but pure sugar. And then there's also pizza, which is not high in sugar, but it's super savory and has umami and savory in it all at the same time exactly. and encourages, you know, a lot of consumption. So it's, it's these, these multi-flavor combinations that all, almost always across the board besides soda yeah. are actually high in fat, which I think is really important to point out. I think it was, you got me thinking about that years and years ago, because I, I probably was biased towards the idea that sugar is addictive. Mm. And you know, in our research, we had people drinking glucose solution. That's not addictive. Nope. You drink glucose solution. You do not want to have sugar again for probably days because it's disgusting you don't even want to finish the the, the, the sugar drink you're drinking yeah. <laughs> yeah. it was truly physiologically addictive you would drink that and you would want some more absolutely and you would probably be gravitating towards eating sugar out of the 
bowl or you know but absolutely we don't we want those flavor combinations because there's so much more going on and i think there's a big part of it psychosocial but there's also a big part of it i think that is physiological based on different flavors providing different compounds that were nourishing back mm -hmm. in the day you know different things and that's where i think as well we miss some of the point around nutrient density because i personally think that it will be interesting to investigate that further whether micronutrient sufficiency plays a role in satiety as well just like protein sufficiency does well there is certainly some limited evidence to suggest that eating um nutrient dense foods well it's tough to unpack but there's i would say there's certainly some subject subje suggestive uh data that if you are always sufficient and in, in eating an abundant amount of micronutrients that it typically results in a lower uh a lower total energy intake and we've already had protein leverage theory um and some of the more recent research that very high protein intakes can inhibit um appetite so we know already that you know high fiber and it, the reason why i say it's hard to unpack but it's suggestive is because of the way you get in micronutrients is eating stuff that is high in fiber and high in water and high in food bulk, but very low in calories, fruits and vegetables, right? Yeah. So all of those things occur simultaneously when you eat a whole food, high protein diet. Yeah. Like boom. You've got every possible avenue uh, towards uh, suppressing energy intake subconsciously while even eating ad libitum going on at the same time. And it's really changed my mindset the more I become aware, aware of this stuff. Because when people ask me like, hey, man, you're shredded. What should I do? Hey, you're a bodybuilding coach. What should I do? They're expecting me to tell them what not to eat. And what I focus on is telling them what to add to their diet. Uh, even though my old school mindset, I have biases too. This whole calories in, calories out, really strict model is where I started. And, you know, I would cite research like these idiots, they see a burger and you put a salad next to it. And I think it's less calories. People are so dumb. <laughs> but the funny thing is the way it works in the real world. So you take someone who's eating cheeseburgers and sodas and pizza and you have them add a salad to their diet every day. They end up eating less yeah. because something has to go. They're not tracking calories. They're not a math machine, right? Yeah. So when I meet people, I tell them, hey, I want you to get a serving of lean protein at every meal. And I want you to have either a fruit or a vegetable every time you eat a meal. And your snacks can be fruits or vegetables or, or, or some kind of uh, protein supplement. Yeah. And no, no, I don't mean peanuts. I mean protein. Yeah. And when they do that, they just lose weight and they think it's magic foods. But in reality, what's happening is something's got to go. They're getting a much higher level of both mechanical satiety. Uh, they're getting an adequate amount of, of protein, fiber, hydration, water, food bulk. All that stuff is, is being driven up. Uh, and instead of trying to push the other way where they have to exert willpower to eat less of the foods that are not filling them up yeah. because they're actually driving hunger. And that's just a, a matter of time before they fail. Well, it's like you said, there, there's so much to unpack there because the, the, the multifactorial nature of food. So mm -hmm. it's probably a really good example of where functional outcomes study is more important than trying to isolate all the various compounds within that could be providing for because it's very difficult to do and it's probably not that useful either. It's not that informative because we know that if you're eating more nutrient-dense foods, there's a whole bunch of rationale for why that could be providing for that satiety and even more than satiety i think we've talked about the nutrient interactions yeah and we've talked about the term auto regulation before 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you use that term, whether you came up with it or I came up with it or someone else came up with it, I don't know, but it's, an, I think it's an interesting- Melsif, probably one of, one of the, if you want to track back auto-regulation research, it comes from super training. On nutrients? About it. No, but that's just where the kind of the term, yeah, it's yeah. been borrowed from training to go into nutrition now. Yeah, so. exactly. And I mean, I think it, it speaks to a broader concept. No, I, I, I made up keto. You made it. You were. You invented. I invented keto. keto. Yeah. I invented flexible dieting. I've been told that, <laughs> yeah. which is obviously not true as well. There's plenty of people out there who claim to have invented fasting and all sorts of things. But anyway, this mm-hmm. auto regulation, I think, speaks to a broader concept because it's it's more than just satiety as measured by a lot of the satiety studies, for example, where you know eat this food, then half an hour or two hours later, how hungry are you on a subjective appraisal? Or what happens if you go to a buffet? Yeah. Well, that's actually a better measure, I think, because I agree, but also over the longer term, mm-hmm. you know, and I often use the example and I know that you're probably not that big into it, but because I did some research on it, I kind of dig it. But with MCTs, for example, they're not very satiating. If you take some MCTs, a couple of hours later, you'll still feel pretty hungry. But from what I've seen, I'm pretty sure that when people are taking MCTs, they actually choose to eat less overall. How much of that do you think is because they have actually upset their stomach a bit? Uh, not much, because I think okay. that it's that's such a transient thing. But that that's a good suggestion because I'd have to go back and look at the studies and look at dosing because that's certainly something we saw in our study was that the dosing we were applying, which was thirty grams three times a day, yeah, there was a big effect there. Yeah, because sometimes that so that won't change the hedonistic drive to eat necessarily or some of the, the subjective ratings of appetite or hunger yeah. but it will actually make them eat less because of, of nausea that's a, and it could not get picked up yeah. really good point and you know that's why i love talking about this stuff with you because you'll always throw <laughs> a tangent in there which leads leads me to go off and, and look at the studies again and look at yeah, them but that's important because again it speaks to the nuance of this now i know that we've probably got limited time now because you're a very busy man you've got to go and um eat nothing and train more Correct. But I, I wanted to um, finish off by asking whether there's, there are any researchers or authors that are more low-carb biased that you would suggest people read before maybe some of the pseudoscientific authors out there. Are there any people that you think are the go-tos for this, this space in nutrition? Shit, man. You're my go-to, to be 100% honest with you. I, I think I think you are are the man in this space. Um, some other folks who I think have done good research. I like Volick's work. Um, okay. I would largely recommend reading the primary research he's done. Mm. Uh, some of the reviews he's written, I think, I do think some of his, uh, his bias creeps in there, but Volick, I think in the, in the, in the, and in the books what too, I think that comes through. I would agree. Yeah. I think, I think Volick's primary research, I think he does good, he does good science. Yeah. And I think, um, he's, he, because, uh, you know, there's, there's pros and cons of bias, right? The cons are, you know, as maybe his reviews are, and especially narrative ones are a little less balanced, but, uh, the pro is is that he's investigating things in unique ways and trying to find a way to to make something work in in, in, in the research, and he's had some of the more successful low carb interventions that I don't think are just unconscious bias slipping in. I think he probably knows how to do it right. Yeah. Um, and I would say um, I've done some good re- research with Karen Zinn. 
some of the stuff where I've collaborated with her and uh, I think is pretty good. Um, and yeah, the, the, those are my big go-tos to be honest. Um, some of the paleo researchers I think are really cool, but I don't know if you'd classify them as low carb. It's kind of like by happenstance, low carb. Um, I think it speaks to the spectrum, which I think is again, important. You know, if people can, mm -hmm. I think if people can have good primary sources to go to, whether it be low carb, lower carb, higher carb, then I think that really helps because then I think people can get a much broader understanding of all the inter like you mentioned, nutrient interactions are so important, yeah. but it's also the what nutrient. You, where where would interaction. you place Louise, Louise Burke? Um, it's a good question. Cause, I, I, cause you know, the funny thing is I've heard some low carb zealots classify her as being like anti low carb, but in my opinion, she, she she's the one who is is pioneered and introduced the concepts of uh, like carbohydrate um, periodization and yeah. and honestly, one of the closer things to I know your carbohydrate appropriate is is more is more like clinical or general pop focused, but her whole idea of hey, we need to be much more specific with phase of training periodization type of athlete and individual need. She, I mean, she she's very comfortable with. Yeah in some cases recommending what would be considered low carb in the performance community yeah. and has had to do that over years to get the IOC to adopt it as a position stand and stuff like that. So I'm a big fan of Louise Burke. I think she's very balanced. Yeah. She's done some really good research. I and I think, I think research that like, it's easy to set up a study to make low carb look bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You glycogen deplete someone, give them low carbs and then make them do something that's carb dependent. You go, oh, look at that. It messed you up. Yeah. And for 72 hours, <laughs> exactly. but doing something like, Hey, I'm going to recruit, um, competitive race walkers, like hey, if low carb is going to work from, for, for some athlete, this is a high probability of working. It's a, they're, they're rate limited to how much energy they're expending and, and the rate they need it. And we'll give them time to actually be fat adapted based on what we know. And then we'll see what happens in a time trial. I, yeah. you know, that that's work that, uh, that, that she's done. And I think that's a, um, that study design is indicative that she's actually interested in figuring out when low carb could be, it could be potentially beneficial. So. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I think that Louise Burke's work has been really important in the same way that I think Kevin Hall's work has been important mm -hmm. in the same way that I think Chris Gardner's work is really important. Notwithstanding that I might look at some of their studies and like any of us could say, well, I wouldn't have done the study that way. Sure. Um, or I think maybe there's some methodological things here which have influenced the results because there always will be. You know, we, we discussed that uh, in relation to one of my studies where, you know, the methods could have been done really in two different ways to give different results, not better or worse results. Yep. And I think that's a really good example of not using any one thread of research or any one study to either say this is right or wrong, good or bad because it's mm -hmm. going to be context dependent. And like you said earlier, it's going to be population dependent. And uh, it just drives me nuts when particularly low carb, actually, but low carb or high carb people will not give the same, I guess, oversight to studies they're reading because it fits with their bias. Now we're all going to have bias. And I think yeah, that, that, that's fine. That, that, that's, an, that's a human thing. Yeah. I, I agree. But it's also a valuable thing because I think if we don't have a belief that something is going to result in a particular outcome, we're not really 
creating robust hypotheses. Mm-hmm. I think that's where it all comes from. You kind of think, you know what? I think this is going to work. The, the key there is being strong enough, I think, to shift your position or to say, you know what? We didn't find this and there's more going on here. Or, in con- you know, I love reading in a study in contrast to a hypothesis. This is yes. what happened. That's mm-hmm. important rather than fudging it or not publishing the results or going fishing for other things within the data. I agree. Uh, one of the person who I do like, and most people will be familiar with this because he was on with Lane Norton on the uh, the podcast, but Dominic D'Agostino. Yeah, I think his podcast appearances are, are they're they're cool, um, but he's always used as the low carbohydrate person, so I think it forces him to be a little more biased. But I think the research he's done is is uh, is very good, and I think he's more or less balanced. And he's also looking at it from a different angle, you know, yeah. investigating the potential for clinical treatment of cancer and things like that. Um, use in, 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 in things you might not expect. Yeah. And I, I've always found him to be like, says up front, you know, I have a bias. I think this is good, but here's, but I, I think he's an honest researcher and I think he does good work. I think Dom's the man and, and his, uh, like with any of us in his particular area, I think he's the, the man. Mm-hmm. I think it's strange though, that Dom is, is often seen as being the, the low carb guy when he's probably, I'm, I'm sure he'd admit to this. He's quite specific on keto and ketones. Yeah, that's true. And, He's a ketogenic diet researcher, not a low-carb diet researcher. I would say that's accurate. And, and there's it's, a, it's, Yeah, it's ketones as, as a clinical tool. And there's a massive benefit, I guess, in having him there and him being so visible because he can give a really pragmatic scientific messaging around that, you know, without being pseudoscientific and salesy. Um it also it's interesting that Gary Torbs is the low carb poster boy because I think there's probably better people out there. Not better necessarily. That that's denigrating. I didn't mean that. What I mean is I think there are researchers who could probably I'll go ahead and say better for you. <laughs> well, there, there's researchers who could probably I would say someone who's less likely to do harm, in my opinion, is better. And I do think Gary has done harm. That's my personal opinion. Interesting. Yeah, I, as far as the the the, uh, the vehemence and the black and white and the the in, the, the intellectual inflexibility on a, on a given model, I don't think yeah. that's that's a good message. And I like uh, it was interesting. Stefan in that debate said that he was a real fan back in the day, until he started sitting back and thinking about it a lot more. And I, I would say I was the same. I'd already already mm-hmm. had that bias to some degree. But when I read, you know, why we get fed, it's kind of like, why didn't I ever simplify things to this yeah. degree? He's a good writer, man. And I think, yeah. and I'll, I'll, I think, I think I'll, I'll leave the audience with this point: is that it's easy to ascribe malice to a group of people who have very strong beliefs that don't agree with yours. Mm. But in this case, man, if you're reasonably intelligent, basically scientifically literate, or even quite well versed. And you get exposed to someone who's a good writer, can tell a good story and make connections. And like, if you read Why We Get Fat, if I had read that in even my, let's say, late undergraduate degree, I would have bought that hook, line and sinker. Yeah. And I think that that speaks to the fact that this is not always malice. Sometimes it's just, if you get exposed to cherry picked data that, that all connects very well, you can, you, that can make a lot of sense, mm. you know, and, and you, and, and that's why it's difficult. And until you, 
really start to go, all right, now I need to try to find something to, to counter my own hypotheses. You like this, this, such an important intellectual practice is try to counter your own deeply held positions. Yeah. And if you can do that, that's when you will really become free of just trying to listen to the different talking heads. And what a great note to end on. That's awesome, brother. I, um, I appreciate you being on for all this time as do I'm sure everyone that will be listening to this over the next wee while. Now we'll put up in the show notes, obviously all the ways that they can get in touch with you, but you have a number of things going on. You have your mass research review. Yes, sir. That's myself, Greg Knuckles and Mike Zerdos. We do a monthly research review on the newest stuff as it applies to strength, sport, bodybuilders, coaches, anyone interested in lifting uh, in any, any, any way, shape or form of all the disciplines we've talked about. And I mean, that that's a real, I mean, I, I really appreciate that resource. I obviously get it every month and it's one of the the few research reviews that I've remained subscribed to because it seems to be relevant. You, you almost seem to be inside my head like this month, HRV. I was about to ask you about yeah, HRV man. and suddenly it comes up. So that's great. We'll have to talk about that on another cast actually. Love to. Um, but you've also got your new updated muscle and strength pyramids coming out. And finally they're in hard copy as well. Yeah. So in January, we launched the second edition. Actually we first launched them in late 2015 after about you know three three plus years of, of new data and 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 thinking thinking of other things to add to the books more resources uh really became my my life's work getting out the second edition and there was a lot added to them and then we were just really finally happy to figure out a way to get people physical copies because you know with it's a good problem to have but the amount of people who want the books way overwhelms our ability to ship them on our own so we went yeah. through the amazon kdp so now you can buy the actual physical copies of the books if you don't want the digital uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're textbook size books, but they're written in a way that is much more digestible in the textbook. So those are available on Amazon now for anyone who has been holding out. They don't, they didn't want the eBooks and they want the, the second edition in physical, they're available. And I'll just say that, you know, I obviously got to, if you gave me a sneak peek at the book before it came in and I've got to say, I was really impressed, not just by how good the book was in its original form, but just how much you had improved it. And, Thank you. you know, that, that's, that's awesome. I, I really like that, that book. And I think it's a really amazing resource for people to have. So we'll put up all the links to that stuff so that you can, can get in touch with Eric and see what he's up to. Thank you for being on the Cub Appropriate podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Always a great discussion. Thanks, buddy. That was the Carb Appropriate Podcast with me, Cliff Harvey. If you'd like to watch the live recording of the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Cliff Harvey. Find out about me and what I do at cliffharvey.com and make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all popular podcast channels and to our YouTube channel at holisticperformance.tv.